Good afternoon and welcome to From Where We Are, stories of news and culture through the lens of USC and Southern California. I'm Jamila Hammond coming to you live from Studio B and USC's Annenberg Media Center. And I'm Colby Martin. It's Thursday, March 10th, 2022. On today's show... Growing international support for Ukraine amidst ongoing invasion. Pregnant women going for healthcare, being injured by, I don't know, a missile, a bomb, in an unprovoked, unjustified war. Proposals to further enhance protection for renters in Los Angeles, and agreements reached between Major League Baseball and its athletes over salary disputes. Ooh, I'm excited about that. All that and more, but first, these news headlines. For Annenberg Media News, this is Claire Fogarty. The Russian invasion of Ukraine entered its third week today. Vice President Kamala Harris called for an international war crime investigation into Russia over its invasion of Ukraine today during a press conference in Warsaw. Russia and Ukraine discussed a 24-hour ceasefire during the highest level talks since the war began, but failed to find common ground. California's average price for a regular gallon of gas hit $5.75 on Wednesday, $1.32 more than the national average of 425. There are no signs of prices slowing down, and though Gavin Newsom has promised an eventual tax rebate, there is no immediate relief for consumers. The Department of Labor reported consumer inflation rise of 7.9% over the past year, the sharpest spike since 1982. Record inflation has become a top political threat to President Joe Biden and congressional Democrats as the midterm elections draw closer. Today, the Purdue Pharma-Sackler family had a U.S. bankruptcy court hearing. Over 20 people affected by opioid addiction gave emotional statements about how OxyContin impacted their lives. Former USC water polo coach Jovan Vavich's Operation Varsity Blues trial opened today. Vavich received $250,000 in bribes in exchange for faking athletic credentials for two Trojan recruits. He is the only coach of the many implicated to challenge his charges in court. Those are some of the top news stories of today. Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues into its third week. While efforts to end the attacks have failed to produce results, the international community continues to get more involved with supporting Ukraine. Michael Gribben reports. Russian forces continue to gradually push forward into Ukrainian population centers today as they face fierce opposition from territorial defense forces. Russian troops also laid siege to Chernyev near the Belarus border as the city's death toll continues to rise. Heavy fighting continues near the capital of Kyiv. Russian forces gained control of the town Bucha outside of the city and moved southwest to try and encircle the capital. Russia also continued its attack on the port city of Mariupol where Russian forces shelled a maternity hospital Wednesday, killing three people and injuring at least 17, according to Ukrainian officials. During a joint press conference in Warsaw this morning with Poland's president, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris called for an investigation of potential Russian war crimes. But just limited to what we have seen. Pregnant women going for health care, being injured by, I don't know, a missile, a bomb, in an unprovoked, unjustified war? Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky also called the bombing of the hospital a war crime on Wednesday. And then he said it was final proof, proof of a genocide of Ukrainians taking place. The International Committee of the Red Cross described the situation in Mariupol as increasingly dire and warned that hundreds of thousands of people there have no access to food, water, 
heat, electricity, or medical care. Foreign ministers for Russia and Ukraine met in Turkey earlier today, but their meeting failed to make any progress towards ending the violence in Ukraine. Ukraine is insistent on an immediate ceasefire, something Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said was never going to be on the table during Thursday's conference. Following the conference, the Ukrainian Foreign Minister said, we can't stop the war if the country that started the attack has no willingness to do that. It is unknown when the next peace talks will be held between Ukraine and Russian diplomats. However, stagnation in today's negotiations signal that a resolution might not be agreed upon anytime soon. For Annenberg Media, I'm Michael Griffin. Three Los Angeles City Council members introduced new renter protection measures yesterday. Sharinidhi Bhupati has the story. The Fair Access for Renters proposition hopes to restrict the kind of information that landlords can ask of tenants. This would prevent screening on the basis of criminal eviction or credit histories. Under these motions, landlords would need to be transparent about the screening criteria they use for evaluation of applicants. They also cannot pose any questions regarding tenants' inability to pay rent or utilities during the pandemic. Council member Marquise Harris Dawson said he saw the motion as an accompaniment to legislation the city passed in 2016 that prohibits employers from asking about a job applicant's criminal history until after an offer has been made. The motion's co sponsors, Council members Nitya Raman and Mike Bonin, considered these motions a necessary step to help those Los Angelinos experiencing houselessness. For Annenberg Media, I'm Srinadi Bhupati. No, your ears do not deceive you. America's greatest pastime is getting back into the swing of things. Major League Baseball has ended its 99-day lockout after the league reached a tentative agreement with the MLB Players Association. Sam Tarlov has the story. The agreement outlines various changes that aim to stop some of the practices that have allowed team owners to claim a greater percentage of the team's profits. Some of the biggest changes include increasing the competitive balance tax threshold for team payrolls from $210 million to $230 million. The competitive balance tax is known as a luxury tax, and it's designed to cap how much baseball clubs spend in order to ensure fair competition. Teams who spend more than the designated threshold must pay revenue taxes that go towards player benefits and funding smaller teams. Basically, a lower tax threshold leads to teams spending less and players reaping less of the profits. Another term agreed to will raise the player's starting salary from $570,000 to $700,000. The agreement, which will remain in place for the next five years, will allow for spring training to open this weekend and the current 2022 season to take place in its entirety. Opening day of the 2022 season will take place on April 7th. For Annenberg Media, I'm Sam Tarlow. Next up, ever wondered where the famed Black Panther Party got its name? Before they were taking police brutality and systemic racism head-on in the 1970s, founders Huey Newton and Bobby Seale first had to figure out what to call the radical civil rights organization. Here's Nia McMillan with this week's Root Source. 
February 17th marks what would have been Huey P. Newton's 80th birthday. Back in October 1966, he and Bobby Seale founded the Black Panther Party. The Black Panthers were a Marxist-Leninist Black Power organization that contrasted the nonviolent integrationist political groups of the Southern Civil Rights Movement. The uh, California Penal Code Section 12020 through 12027 and also the Second Amendment of the Constitution guarantees the citizen a right to bear arms on public property. No, they weren't inspired by Black Panther, the superhero who first appeared in the Marvel comics that same year. And contrary to a popular misconception, Stanley didn't name the character in reference to what the political group was stirring up in Oakland. Get that association out of your head. So where did the Black Panthers get their name, and how did it spread to become almost synonymous with the Black Power Movement? Let's take it back to 1965. While working with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, to increase Black voter registration in Alabama, Kwame Ture, then known as Stokely Carmichael, founded the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. Yes, that Kwame Ture, who would become the chairman of SNCC and eventually the prime minister of the Black Panther Party. Well, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization used a Black Panther as its mascot, juxtaposing the white-dominated local Democratic Party mascot, a white rooster. Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale adopted the symbol and created the Black Panther Party. Newton believed it was representative of the organization's main goal, defense of black people against oppressive systems and state-sanctioned violence by the police. Use the uh, Black Panther as our symbol because of the nature of a panther. The panther doesn't strike anyone, but uh, when he's assailed upon, that he'll back up first. But if the aggressor continues, then he'll strike out. But self-defense wasn't the only thing on the party's agenda. They were fighting the evils of capitalism just as much as those of white supremacy. They implemented community health clinics for education and treatment of diseases, including sickle cell anemia, tuberculosis, and sexually transmitted diseases. And their free breakfast program fed tens of thousands of hungry kids across the country before school. Let's just summarize it. We want housing, we want clothing, we want education, we want justice, and we want peace. Long before T'Challa was teaming up with the Avengers, the fierce Black Panther symbolized the Black vote, thanks to Kwame Ture, and then Black Power, thanks to Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. And its nine lives don't seem to be running out anytime soon. For Annenberg Media, I'm Nia McMillan. Leo Sorensen is an undergraduate and progressive degree public relations student who has written on microaggressions he has experienced at USC. Identified as an individual with multiple disabilities, Leo has come in to further discuss the lack of proper equity he encounters and possible solutions to tackle. Leo, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. I'm so grateful to be here with you, and I'm so grateful to be in the studio where I where I first started off as a journalism student, then I transferred to PR, so I'm very grateful to be here. Great. So it seems as though, reading your article, that these microaggressions you mentioned are a common occurrence here at USC for you. How have they impacted your student experience? Well, let's go back a little bit, because I think it's important to frame the conversation a little bit in terms of where I came from. So I'm originally from Tokyo, Japan. I came here when I was... Uh, about uh, six years old, I'm sorry, six years old, and I, and I came and did public school, and then I got, you know, and then uh, throughout many years of trying, I went, we had, to, when I was in school, we had to, uh, through, throughout my, throughout my career as a student, 
in public schools, we had to hire lawyers to make sure that I would eventually end up, you know, at some type of university. So um, I've always had to face microaggressions, I think, in some small or big way. And now going back, going to the university, the very first day I arrived on campus, the the desk that, you know, I, I didn't even think about ordering, I didn't even think about asking the uh, OSAS, which is our Office of Disability Services, um, about possibly getting a desk where I could roll with my chair for your for your audience. I'm in a big power chair, so you can't really, I can't transfer either, so you're going to have to accommodate that, so that's that's another thing, and then, um, so, and then also from, from a cycle, from, from what you're asking me, um, some of the professors, especially in the program, uh, especially in in the GE programs, they never dealt with a student like me. So they're just ba- basing it off of an accommodation letter, right? So some of what I wrote in my piece is is based on the social normities that we face in our world. And so, you know, like I had a TA complain once about putting my computer away in my bag. Okay, legally you don't have to do that under ADA compliance or under what the university or the or the state is mandating you to do. But it's a, just a nice gesture. It's the same thing as opening a door for someone. You know, if you if you if you see a grandmother who needs a door open, you're gonna open the damn door. Excuse me, I can't cuss on on radio, but you're okay. But uh, <laughs> but yeah. Leo Sorensen is a public relations student at USC and aspires to soon represent people with physical disabilities in the media. Thank you so much for coming, Leo. I, we really appreciate it uh, with you coming in thank today. You. This, was, this has been incredible. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's all we have time for on today's From Where We Are. Yuki Leong, Yurohi Shef, Wilco Martinos Chiquero, and Paulina Cherezova produced today's show. We also had help from Nia McMillan, Coco Shinshi Wong, Claire Haskell, and Bobby Gifford. Derek Renfro composed our theme music, and we are maskless, baby! <laughs> Make sure we stream live on KXSC. Follow us at kxsc.org listen. And we're on YouTube at Annenberg Radio News. Subscribe to From Where We Are on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And look for us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Annenberg Media. Tonight at 6 p.m., there will be a special show centered around the radio hosts who will be in the same room on air for the first time this semester. So tune in. So tune in. You don't want to miss this. Aside from that, we're off for spring break. See you after that. I'm Colby Martin. And I'm Jamila Hammond. From all of us at Annenberg Radio, wherever you are, we hope you'll join us again for From From Where Where We Are. Are.